Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that you're here. My name's Ben. Welcome to Four Corners. If you're our guest today, a special welcome to you. We'd like a record of your attendance. What we'd like for you to do is take the pen that was provided on your seat and your connect card that looks like this and give us your name and address. And we promise a no hassle guarantee. Nobody's going to show up at your door. We're not going to call you. We do want to send you in the mail, though, some gift certificates for some free Chick-fil-A food. It's our way of saying thanks for being with us. And if you're our regular attender around here, you know the drill. Just give us your name and your email address. Make sure we can read it. And we'll use this card a little bit later on in the service to take some steps together so that we don't just hear a message from God's word. We actually put it into practice. And if you're our guest, you'll find out about that when we get to it. But for everybody in the room, if you came in with something you're excited about, something good going on in your life, or something that's challenging or you would like prayer for, make sure you write that on the back of your Connect card. We pray every week around here on Tuesday when the staff gathers all together, and we pray for the stuff that you tell us is on your heart. It's a big deal for me, and it populates my prayer all week long, all right? Well, you've joined us for a, a next installment, week four, of a message series we're calling Turning Points. Turning Points. And we've been looking at moments in Jesus' life when he did what he did or he said what he said, and everything changed. So you can follow along with us today in your message notes. They look like this. You can open them up on the inside and follow along. On the front, though, if you get a little bored while I'm talking, you can find out all about our Christmas gift this year. Every year our church gets together and we boldly ask people to give money for outreach and for innovation in our church. And most of that information about where that money's going is here. A big portion of it's going to our orphanage in India, in Kerala, where we take care of girls now for seven years. We've built a facility and care for them, provide their food and education and clothing and that sort of thing. And then another big portion is going to be going to Cuba, where we hope over the next several years to do a very similar thing. Work with the local congregation to establish an outreach into their own community with their own people, building an orphanage. And we're going to lay the foundation for a lot of that work this year with the money that you give. And I wanted to say a special thank you to Four Corners so far, because at this point in our Christmas offering, we've never been as far along as we are right now. Because of a couple of very substantial gifts, we're over the $10,000 mark towards our $80,000 goal. And that's the point where all the Pentecostals in the room give a clap for the generosity of this church. Yes, that's really good. Uh, I mentioned Pentecostals on purpose right now because I want to give you a message today that talks to you about the Holy Spirit. I want to talk to you about the Holy Spirit. And I don't know what you uh, think about the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Holy Spirit. But we're going to talk about it today and how important it is. Not just how important, but what a privilege it is for God to have given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right? And so we're going to follow along in our message notes. In fact, I want to take you right now to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. That's our jumping off verse on your phone, in your Bible, on the screen, in your message notes, however you want to follow along. But John chapter 16, verse 7 says these words. <clears throat> Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the comforter, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, if you've been in church for any length of time at all, it can raise up a lot of emotions. <clears throat> it can raise up a lot of concerns. It can raise up a lot of positive experiences and anticipation as well. If you're our guest today, I, I want you to 
pay attention, especially close, because you're going to hear us talk about something that makes the Christian life more than just academic. It makes it more than just a set of propositions that we believe or a list of doctrine. It makes it more than the buildings that you might drive by in every city almost around the globe where there's a church. It's the power and the agency and the personality of the Holy Spirit that makes Christianity for so many of us such a real and vital force in our life. It is many times the secret behind the Christian life. When you've seen people struggling and you saw them facing almost insurmountable odds and they came through it with a positive disposition or they came through it holding on to their faith, even at the end of significant loss, what was going on there was the Holy Spirit was at work in a person. And that Holy Spirit made their faith more than just a belief, but it became power in their lives. Now, I grew up, as I have said to you before, I grew up in a Pentecostal church in the South. That's my heritage. I was trained Presbyterian after that. And so I have been exposed to a range of conversations about the Holy Spirit. And over the course of my life in ministry, I've had an opportunity to watch God do some powerful things, but I've never seen God work more powerfully in a person's life than when an individual Christian wakes up to the reality of the Holy Spirit. One of my heroes of the faith, a gentleman by the name of Bill Bright, Bill Bright started a ministry called Campus Crusade, and they have brought the gospel literally around the world on college campuses and have mobilized a couple of generations of folks. And many people in this room, you've been impacted by Bill Bright's ministry. And Bill Bright said this, and I thought it was very interesting. Bill Bright said, if I could, and he, he had an evangelistic heart. He said, if I could find a whole room full of people who didn't know the gospel and I could share with them the gospel, or if I could find a small group of Christians who were believers, but they didn't know the power of the Holy Spirit. Between those two, if I could pick which one I'd invest in, if I could only invest in one group, he said, give me the small group of Christians and let me light them on fire with the reality of the Holy Spirit, because that would literally change the world more than just the gospel being preached once. His point was is that there's something powerful about the Holy Spirit. Now, the phrase that we started with with Jesus today in John, the phrase that we started with is the one that is one of the most perplexing things to me Jesus ever said. And it literally is a turning point. When he says this, it's going to change everything. Here's what he said. It's like, I like being with you, but if I stay with you, I can't go away. And if I can't go away, you're not going to get the gift of the helper, or the Holy Spirit, or the comforter. If I'm still here, he's not coming. Now in our church, over the last 13 years, we've had to hire a few people. And as I was thinking about this message this week, I thought about this. What if, what if one day I'm looking at our staff opportunities and in, in the various ways we look for a staff person, somebody sends me a resume, and I'm making this up, obviously, you'll see why in just a minute. But let's just imagine somebody sends me a resume and I look at the resume, and it looks like Jesus Christ himself is applying for our open staff position. Like, as a pastor, that just seems like, that would just be amazing to have Jesus come alongside you and go, hey, Ben, I'm going to help you out for a few months. I'd like to be your associate. I'd like to be your, you know, executive or probably worship pastor, Will, just, you know, who knows. Um, and, 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 but I, I'm going to do it myself. Like, that would be really cool. The idea of Jesus walking beside you. I, I bet you can relate a little bit because I bet you've had moments in your life where it'd be really cool to think, man, 
Wouldn't it be great if Jesus could be like right here and I could talk this out with him right now? Or what if, what if Jesus could be there the last time you had a major argument with your spouse or your girlfriend or her best friend and Jesus himself could come and kind of referee and say, I'm going to help. Like that would be really awesome and we can think about that, right? But when Jesus was talking to his disciples, here's what he said. Better than having me beside of you is having the spirit inside of you. Better than having me beside of you is having the Holy Spirit inside of you. And that kind of rocks your world if you haven't thought about it. That for Jesus, his own words were, I have to go so that I can send the Holy Spirit to you. On your first blank, let's fill that in. There was something so important about the Holy Spirit that Jesus told his disciples to not so much as lift a finger towards the Great Commission until they had received the Holy Spirit. There was something so important. Here's the scene. Jesus has given his life, he's been resurrected, and he's in the final few conversations with his disciples. And he tells them, I want you to go ahead into Jerusalem, and I want you to wait there. I want you to wait there. And when you wait there, and you wait there like I'm telling you do, what's going to happen is God's going to send you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now just think about that for a second. Here was Jesus. He had already given his life. He's been resurrected. The disciples have been following him. They're being commissioned to go tell. But before he lets them go tell a single person about himself, about the gospel, about our need for a savior before a person is allowed to do a single thing. He tells this small group of people, I want you, this small group of people, to go sit in a small room and don't do anything. I want you to wait. I don't want you to go ahead and get started. I want you to wait until I send you power. Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. For Jesus, the Holy Spirit was a really, really big deal. Now, so there are some churches that emphasize that and perhaps overemphasize that. You know you're in one of these churches when just before the worship starts, people start doing stretching exercises because it's going to be a full body participation sport. Like if you see them doing stretch, you're in one of those churches that kind of really goes all the way on the Holy Spirit, right? And then there are other churches, and they believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. And they don't even talk about the Holy Spirit hardly at all. They don't talk about him at all. That's kind of the range. In fact, let me, let me give you a couple blanks to fill in, and I want to talk just a little bit about the range of what people have done. Number one, the Holy Spirit makes the presence of God real to us. The Holy Spirit makes the presence of God real to us. And this reality of the presence of God is a really big deal. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that God would come down in the cool of the day and he would walk in the garden and he would be with Adam and Eve. When Moses was at the burning bush, we talked about that not that long ago in here, and Moses was at the burning bush, God said, I'm going to be with you. When the prophets talked about the coming Messiah, the event that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks called Christmas, they said that one of his names would be Emmanuel, God with you. And the Hebrew people had a name for God. Jehovah Shema, the God who is with us. That's a big deal for God to be with his people. 
And so Jesus came and he lived among his people. But he made it clear in his teaching. In John chapter 14 through John chapter 16, over 20 times Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit and how important it's going to be for the Holy Spirit to come and be a part of the life of every single follower of Jesus. It's going to be essential. You won't be effective in your faith. You won't be effective in your work. There's going to be a certain shallowness to your belief if the Holy Spirit isn't a radical important part of your life. The Holy Spirit is that thing that makes the presence of God real to us. In John chapter 14, verse 18, one of the 20 places in three chapters that the Holy Spirit's referenced, here's what Jesus says. I'll not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. I'll come to you. How does Jesus come to people? How does the presence of the Lord make itself known to people? Well, that's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Every person, over 100 adults in this room this year so far, who have committed their lives to Jesus, the moment that they opened up their life to him and invited him to forgive their sins, not based off their own work, but off the work of Jesus, the moment they did that, the Bible says at that moment, the Holy Spirit moves into a person's life. I don't understand the physics of it. and I don't know mechanically how it happens, but the Bible makes it clear that the Holy Spirit becomes a part of a person's life. It's no longer the Jesus beside of you, but it's the God inside of you, dwelling inside of you. And it's the God that makes the life with Jesus not only possible, but vibrant. It brings a certain power to the strategy of the Christian life. And for many of us, The Holy Spirit's kind of an afterthought. We believe in it, but we don't think much about it. It's much to me like my pituitary gland. I believe it's there, but I don't think about it very often. And that's how a lot of us treat the Holy Spirit. But that's not the way that Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit. For Jesus, the Holy Spirit was an animating, personal reflection of God because the Holy Spirit is God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit would be the one that when Jesus goes back to heaven, which is where he is right now, would be the one making the work of God real to us in this life. Our Christian faith is more than what we believe, although it includes what we believe. Our Christian faith is very much the presence of God at work in our lives, making what God wants us to know real to us. So the next blank. And you can pick your favorite word here, whichever one you can relate to. But many Reformed or Baptist or Presbyterian people think that going deep in the gospel is developing feelings of gratitude and holiness. That if you really want to go deep, what you need is understand doctrine. You need to understand the gospel fully. You need to have it all right. And when you do, what that's going to produce in you is feelings of gratitude and joy. And you're going to want to begin to walk in obedience out of a heart of gratitude. And they're not wrong. That's right. When the Holy Spirit is at work, he takes this set of beliefs that we have and says they're not just beliefs, they're real. And when you begin to understand what God has done for you, it can produce deep joy in you. And it can produce a desire to follow God, not because you need God to like you, but because you're grateful that he already loved you. But that's not enough. That was not what Jesus said would be the highest expression of our Christian faith. On the other hand... On the other extreme, I've already talked about this, many charismatic folks or Pentecostal folks 
They don't understand that the main thing the Holy Spirit does is to make the love of God known to us and affirms us as the sons and daughters of God. The Holy Spirit does a lot of things. And in some Pentecostal and charismatic circles, if you're familiar with that, they have a very rigid set of what they believe the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. And sometimes they underemphasize that one of the core roles of the Holy Spirit is to make us aware, to make you aware that you belong to God. Look at how Paul talked about how the Holy Spirit would work in the life of a believer. In Romans chapter 5. And hope does not put us to shame. We catch Paul in the middle of a conversation. We're going to extract the next phrase out. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love gets poured out. God's love is spread abroad in our heart. God's love overwhelms, overfills our heart. The love of God fills your own heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. He fills you up with love. He, what kind of love? The love you have for one another? That's not what he's talking about here. That's a valid love. That's part of the world. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about he makes you, the Holy Spirit makes you aware that your heavenly Father loves you. He confirms that you are with him and you're part of his family. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves. Remember, this is Paul's letter to the Roman church and some 40% of the population of Rome at this point are literally servants. Indentured servitude was a normal way of life in Rome. And the spirit of God does not make you a slave like that. No, no, no. So that you have to live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by the Lord whose name is the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Daddy, God. And it makes the presence of God real and known to us. The great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote incredible uh, books, left a, a legacy of just over the last hundred years and worked in the U.S. Senate and pastored some amazing churches, said this phrase, I relate to it. He said, I spent half my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half telling them that doctrine is not enough. That's what I'm trying to say. It's important to know what we believe, but beyond our belief, we are invited to have a relationship with God that is very personal and real. And when the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, that nature of the relationship begins to shift. It, 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 imagine, imagine a dad picking up his son or his daughter. Maybe they've done something really cute. Maybe they you know, hit the ball right or picked up their toys, whatever, just something, whatever it was. And they pick them up and they hold that kid up tight to their chest and says to that son, You're my son. Like, I love you. I'm so proud. I love your mind. I love you. Now, the truth is, in that moment, that son is no more legally a son than he was the moment before. That's not what's being declared. What's being declared is the reality of the pleasure of the father in the son or in the daughter, that they are connected, that they are one together, that they're in a relationship. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He does a lot of things, but one of the primary things he does is he makes the presence of God that is active in our life known to us. It's no longer a list of rules. It's no longer a list of beliefs. It's personal in nature, and this begins to change things. 
If your spiritual life is stale, it could be that what you need, and I don't want to meddle here, but it could be that what you need is an infusion of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Taking you out of the debate over doctrine, although that's legitimate, I love to do that stuff. I was with some of the worship team the other night, and we had a wonderful, just a lengthy and meaningful conversation about some finer points of doctrine. I love that stuff. But doctrine doesn't fill your heart with joy that you're a son or daughter of the king. It's important. You never hear me downplay it, but that's not what does it. What makes it real is the active work of the Holy Spirit. It makes it personal. And when something is personal, it begins to change the nature of things. For instance, when you have a relationship with God and you see yourself as relating to him in a relationship, it changes the way that you see him. Not just as a lawgiver or one who maintains the rules or one who is ultimately going to be a judge, but as one who wants to come alongside of you. What this means is that then when you hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit telling you, don't do that, don't go there, rein that in, pull this back, you begin to hear that as the actual voice of a person who cares for you, who loves you, and who wants to be in a relationship with you. It's no longer some detached lawgiver trying to rob you of joy saying, you know, if it weren't for me, you could have all kinds of fun. But because I'm here, I'm watching you, you better be careful. And by the way, I hold the ultimate punishment over your head. You better be careful. No, when the Holy Spirit comes to convict and says to a man or to a woman, let's rein that in a little bit. We're seeing a little selfishness here. What you hear is not a lawgiver. You hear a friend, a helper, a counselor who comes alongside and says, hey, this ain't good for you. This is not going to take you where you want to go. You think you want this now, but you're forgetting what you ultimately want. You're trading what you want right now for what you ultimately want. And you can get what you want right now, but you won't get what you ultimately want acting this way. And it changes the nature of conviction. When the Holy Spirit begins to be personal in a person's life, and you understand the nature of the relationship, then the direction, there's conviction, there's direction. The direction that God gives is not the thing that we unwillingly get pulled towards. All right, I guess you're God. I guess I need to do this. It's the thing that you gladly step into. Last week when when a very generous family in our church said why they were going to invest deeply in our Christmas offering. I wanted to share with you exactly why they wanted to do it. They said the Lord impressed on them that they were to bless this particular part of our Christmas offering. They're giving to all of it, but the one part that really grabbed their hearts because God told them to. And some people are like, whoa, that's strange and weird. I don't know anything about that. But for years, they've been pressing in and following the direction of God. And so when God said to them, do something like this, it wasn't a foreign request to them, and it wasn't a lawgiver, and it wasn't some rule giver, and it wasn't a make me do it, you're the parent. It was a, hey, it, we followed you long enough to know that if you're directing this way, we're just, we're just going to take that step with you. And it's the nature of the Holy Spirit to make God personal to us. Number two. The Holy Spirit makes the power of God come alive in us. Look at what Jesus said in John 15. Again, 14, 15, and 16. Some 20 times there's direct reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm the vine. 
You're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The Holy Spirit is that part of God that connects us in fellowship with our heavenly Father. And when we are connected to him, then the power and the work of God can flow into our lives. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul writing to the church at Colossae, he says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not Christ beside of you. That's awesome. He's not just your co-pilot, your best friend, the one who's with you through the dark shadows. He's actually inside of you, and that produces a hope, a deep, resonant hope. On Thursday night, we had a funeral here in this building, and I, I, I believe it's either our third or fourth funeral of a Four Corners member um, in like 13 years. It's, we just not, have not had that many. And this lady loved our church, and um, I got to see her at the hospital, and she couldn't talk. She had a breathing tube down her throat. But I remember walking into that room with a couple other staff members thinking, we're here. Like, this is going to be one of the last conversations this woman's ever going to have. So I, I felt like prompted to make the most of this conversation. So I walked up and I said, look, I don't know if we're going to get many more conversations. Do you want to talk about the important stuff we should talk about? And while she couldn't talk, she nodded her head and tears began to come down her face. And I said, can I just ask you point blank, are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? And there was no hesitation, absolutely. And the tears were just streaming down her face. And I said, look, I don't want to presume, but it'd be a real honor for me if I could do your ceremony. And I just need to know what you want. Could we talk about that? And she's like, yes. So I said, I know you love our singing. I know you love the music around here. So I'm just going to list off some songs. And when I get to a few that you like, you just you know, nod your head and we'll make sure. And so... Uh, Chris, who you saw in the video, who helps Pastor Will, was there. And Chris is taking notes as we're talking, and so I could be fully in the moment. And I'm going down a list of songs, and it's like every other song. She's like, "Yes, I love that one. Yes, I love that." We got like a 30 songs. I'm like, "It's gonna be a long ceremony, friends." So we 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 went it down to just a handful of songs, and on Thursday night we sung those songs. So I'd gone through all that I could go through with you know head movements and. Like, is there anything, as I'm talking to folks about you and about your life and about the God that loves you, is there anything you want folks to know? So she raised her finger and began to write letters in the air. All my grandkids to be saved. And then it got to me. It got to me because here, at the last moments of this woman's life, when there was great reason to be aware of the separation that was impending and great reason to be overwhelmed by the medical diagnosis, which at this point was unchangeable, unless the Lord were going to do some kind of miraculous thing, what she had was a burning desire. She had a hope that the gospel would reach all the way down into her family. And that conversation wasn't a normal conversation simply because it was a pregnant moment with significant realities on the line. 
it was an important conversation because the Holy Spirit was there in the room, giving voice to this woman's heart and to her legacy. And we knew that in a few hours, maybe they were going to try to take the tube out. When they did, that'd be it. She'd have a few hours to breathe and to interact. And we hoped that she could talk. And I looked at her and said, when they take this out, if you get the opportunity to talk, I want you to think about what you want to say to every person you love. And I looked at the daughters in the room and said, if this happens, you get out a camera and you record what she says. And she took the next several hours, and in her mind, evidently, she processed a specific message to every single person in her family. And when they pulled that tube out, it was painful. It hurt. And she, but instantly, she came to awareness, and for two hours, she videoed messages to each person about her hope for them. And in every one of them, it dripped with the love of God and the heart of God for her family. What helps a person get past the fear of a moment and get to that kind of beauty in pain? It's the power and the agency of the Holy Spirit at work. Some of you have struggled with your Christian life because it never moved out of your head into your heart. And that's the Holy Spirit. I don't understand all the mechanics of it. It can't be controlled. It certainly has been attempted to be contrived. I saw a lot of that. You know, if we change the key, if we sing it one more time, if I alliterate all my words as I ramp up, then the Holy Spirit shows up evidently in some churches. That doesn't work that way. But you probably know of a moment when you sense that the atmosphere in the room had shifted. That we weren't just singing. We weren't just talking. But God's presence was there. This is what Jesus said would happen when he left earth. It would no longer be the God beside of us, but he would be the God in us. So on your blanks there, some Christians see the Christian life as something they're doing for God. And this is why for some of us, we're anemic. We're powerless. You're doing it in your own strength, and you keep trying to do stuff for God. And it's not all wrong. It just isn't complete. It's fine as a beginning point, but it will never take you to the place of love and joy and peace and power that God wants for all of his kids. Some people see it as Christ and me, Jesus and me, kind of wrestling evil together. You know, the two of us, Jesus, will do it together. And it's not wrong. It's incomplete. A full understanding of the gospel demands that we see the reality as this. In reality, it is Christ in me, empowering me to do and be and say and act. It's what causes a wife to restrain her words in the middle of an argument, bring the temperature down. She doesn't necessarily have that ability in herself, but something begins to trickle in her and there's a charge in her. It says, this conversation's not the way God wants it. And there's a whisper, there's a nudge. She begins to back it down. It's what make a, makes a husband want to love and serve his wife when he's tired and exhausted. And in reality, the truth of the matter is, in this particular season of life, she doesn't even really deserve it. But he says, it's not about what she deserves. There's something in me animating me and growing me in love for her. 
Now, use those examples on purpose because if that's not the nature of your marriage these days, my hunch is, if I could just be honest with you, is that the Holy Spirit's activity in your life has grown dim. When I get to the end of this message in just a few minutes, I'm going to share with you a handful of ways how you can trim the wick and see the light glow, glow brighter a little more than it has been. I want to share with you some practical things you can do to give room for the Holy Spirit to come alive in new and fresh ways for you. For some of you, it's been such a long time. Number three, the Holy Spirit makes the mission of God personal to us. The mission of God. It's not just the Lord's work. It's not just the church. It's the thing God wants me to do with my life. One of the strangest things Jesus said in these three chapters, John 14, 15, and 16, where the Holy Spirit, Spirit is referenced so, over 20 times, is in John 14, 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have done and been doing, and they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. <laughs> all right, first of all, Jesus, it's good for you to leave. Because when you're here, you can only be beside me. But when you leave, God can be in me. Okay, I'm wrestling with that. But then right on the heels of that, you're telling me I can do greater things than you did? Like, how is that possible? I was here. I saw what you did. Blind people had their eyes open. Deaf people could hear. Mute people could speak. Lame people could walk. And dead people came back to life. That seems pretty powerful. So what did Jesus mean? That when the Holy Spirit would come, we would somehow, as followers of Jesus, be able to do greater things. There's a lot we could say about this, but at least on two levels. And you can write this on the side of your notes. They're, they're not there if you want, if you're kind of into this sort of thing like I am. But on one level, Jesus chose to limit himself in the person of, uh, in the body of a, of a human being. When he came to earth, Philippians 2 talks to us about that. It's a wonderful Christmas passage that we don't ever really talk about at Christmas, that he was in heaven, but he became a man and he took on the limitations of the human form. So while Jesus was on earth, he was largely relegated to one geography, relative small sphere. And on a very simple measure, Christianity has effectively circled the globe. And in that way, it's greater. And then in, in other ways, this is kind of just a simple you know, very just touching the surface. When we realize that Jesus was both God and man, it's easy to say, well, he had special ability because of the nature, the one and only God and man that ever existed. But the Bible says that the very power of God that flowed through Jesus as he spoke is available to us. And when we speak out gospel truth in love, it has the power to quicken faith in a person. And in that sense, again, our reach is broader and wider, even though ultimately it comes back to Jesus. There's a lot more we could say about that. But for Jesus, he minimally made the point that we would do great things. And it would be the fact that the Holy Spirit was at work making the mission of God personal to us. It isn't the work that they do over there or he does over here. It's the work we do. It's my work. So Christian mission then is about figuring out what Jesus wants to do through you. We believe as a church, everybody is called. Everybody has a role to play. And part of what we want to do is help you figure that out. That's why this year we developed four unique 
class experience. It's called Grow. And over those four weeks, we do a lot of doctrine. Like the first class is three and a half hours long. There aren't many churches trying to do that. And we've had over 170 people go through that just in the last few months. It's a big deal. But we're not just trying to teach doctrine or church culture. We're trying to create a, a space for people to wrestle with the, the reality that the ministry that God wants to do in this world is to be done by you. You have a role to play. You don't hire it out to a pastor. I got my role to play. Part of my role, Ephesians 4 tells me, is to help equip you to do your role. I'm only doing my role when I equip you to do your role. So service for Jesus, then, is not about a bunch of people working for him. It's not a bunch of work for him, but him working through you. Let me let you in on one of the quickest pathways to spiritual growth if you're a little stale. You want to grow exponentially over the next year? Get involved in ministry. Just start serving people. That was the point of the very first message of the Turning Points message series. Start serving people. Like get down where people are and start serving. God does something explosive in your heart when you serve others. Our church, over 50% of the adults have a serving role. That's high. That's high. And the, the reason is, is we stumbled upon the truth a long time ago. If we want to make disciples, you don't just make disciples in a classroom. There's a classroom component to making disciples, but a disciple cannot be made in a classroom. A disciple can begin in a classroom, but ultimately has to move to the streets and begin to do ministry. And do you know who's calling you to do ministry? It's not your pastor. It's the Lord. And the Holy Spirit from time to time will quicken you and in some formal ways and in some informal ways say to you, God wants to not only do work in you, but he wants to work through you to bless others. And so then service for Jesus is not about a bunch of good ideas where we get together and talk about them, although that's a valid practice. It really is about discerning God's ideas. God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do? When I taught high school, the prayer I had for every kid I ever taught, and when I'd pray in the beginning and at the end of the school year, the thing that I had the heaviest on my heart was not that they would have learned a bunch of stuff, although I hope they had, but they would simply learn to ask a simple question. God, what do you want to do with my life? God, it's your life you've given to me. What do you want to do with it? How do you want to use my life? How do you want to bless the world through me? How do you want me to give myself away? And when you start pressing in like that, it no longer is just doctrine you defend. It's a life you're living. And you bring that kind of an attitude into your home, and it will change your home in under 30 days. Man, if you'll get lit on fire with the ministry God gave every husband, no husband is exempt to serve your wife and give your life for her, it'll change your marriage. Ladies, if you'll commit to the ministry God gave every wife and no wife is exempted, respect your husband. Ephesians 4, go read it. I didn't make it up. And you, do, you decide you're gonna do that as unto the Lord. It will change your marriage. So number four then, the Holy Spirit makes the Christian life come explosively alive to us. The Holy Spirit makes the Christian life come explosively alive to us. Again, it's not a list. It's not a thing to avoid. It's not a thing to do. It's not a, an event to show up for. 
All those can be a part. But it is the very presence of God in your life and you're learning to listen. In the courses that I described, the grow classes, we talk about how to listen to the voice of God. I wish I had time to walk you through that. I don't. We'll do that another time. How do you cultivate an ear for the, to hear and respond to the voice of God? But I want to give you three words that I have found act like the trimming of the wick in the old oil lantern. Some of you remember those. If you've been to Cracker Barrel, you've seen one, right? If, right beside the little triangle puzzle that you've played, you've seen it, the little oil thing, yeah? And what happens is over time, the wicks get burnt. Some, every once in a while, somebody got to come and trim the wick. And when they do, it glows bright again. This is the trimming of the wicks. Three words. Number one, believe the gospel. I'm talking about the kind of belief that you rest your life on. Like, it's true. You can't save yourself, but you don't have to. Jesus' work is more than sufficient. It's adequate. It is sufficient. It is complete. It is, it is whole. And you can trust in the work Jesus did on your behalf to not only secure your relationship with your heavenly Father, but animate your life moving forward. It's not a once and done. He regularly brings his life to you. Believe the gospel, which means maybe for some of us, it is understanding and knowing it more. It's growing in our knowledge. And so you study doctrine. You come to the grow classes that will be offered again in January. You get involved in a small group that's doing a, maybe a verse-by-verse -verse Bible study. And you begin to understand this beautiful thing called the gospel. You believe it. Number two, confess your need of him. Like, I don't mean just out loud. I mean to yourself. Preach yourself a sermon that says, I need God. I can't do this on my own. I, I, I have moments in my life where I've been completely reminded that I need the Lord. Every time I held one of my children for the first time. Like, I, I can't do this, God. I need you. When we started this church 13 years ago, I knew I couldn't do it alone. I not only needed a team, I needed the Lord. I mean, I could plan a service, but here's the challenge about being a pastor. I can't change a single human heart. I can't save anybody. I need him. I can't save myself. I don't even have the power to put the things I know to do into practice all the time. And I am so weak that there are things I know I should do that I don't even do. I need him. I got to remind myself I need him. Over the last, I don't know, 30 or so days, many of the staff who lead this church have been going through a period of fasting and prayer. We've done this a handful of times this year, and this last time was an informal one. Somebody said, I'm doing this. A bunch of people joined on. And when you do that, you're reminding yourself that you need him. Believe, confess, and let me give you one more word. The word is yield, and I put a synonym term there, surrender to his power. God, I'm going to let you do this. Without going into the details, I've been struggling with a particular thing. Not, not a sin, an issue. Not a sin, but an issue. 
I've been struggling with a particular thing and I've done all I know to do to fix it. All I know to do for a long time. And finally, not all that long ago, the Lord kind of broke my spirit about this. That it wasn't mine to do. I had to yield and let him do it. And in many ways, that was incredibly freeing. Until you remember that I can be, if I'm not careful, like most people can, a little bit of a controller of the things that are most important to me. Almost everybody's a controller. It's just what's in your control list. And so I had to say to God, God, for the, for the best I know how, I... I'm going to give this one to you. I don't know how to do this anymore. I have not done well at this. And it's killing me trying. So it's just, it's yours. And there was a bit of of a release that came with that. I haven't seen all the fruit, but I'm beginning to see the Lord at work in this issue that has just eaten my lunch for a long time. We need the Lord. And he wants to work. So let me ask you two quick questions. If you saw the Lord, the Holy Spirit, as a personal friend who was talking to you and a part of your life and investing in you, would that change how you respond to those moments in your Christian life when you feel compelled to do something? If you felt like it was a friend saying, hey, let's think twice before we do that. If it was a friend that came alongside you and said, hey, you know, I think this would be a really good idea for you. If it was a friend that came along and said, hey, I know you're struggling, but... Hey, I'm here for you. I mean, if, if, I'll just listen. You talk, I'll listen. Or, or a counselor that came alongside and said, hey, here's some, here's some wisdom, some nuggets to hold on to. If you saw it as a personal person, would that make a difference in your Christian life? For most of us, I think it would. Here, here's another question. What are you going to do as you wind down this year and look forward to another one? To make sure that you're growing spiritually. I wanted to give you that challenge. Not so that you could add a bunch of to-dos to your list. But I want to put something near the top of your list to consider. What if you became more familiar with the work and the move and the power of the Holy Spirit? This thing that Jesus said he would send when he exited. And he would not be beside of us, but he would be in us. What if you took some time to understand him more, to discover him in the scripture, to talk to believers that are further along than you, to spend some time in prayer saying, God, help me? Or what if you prayed a bold prayer that the Apostle Paul said every Christian should pray a lot? He said it this way, be filled with the Spirit. What if you prayed the prayer, God, today, today would my day be more filled with your Spirit than yesterday? And then the next day, God, today, would you fill me with your spirit to the degree I need your spirit to get through my day? I need you. I can't do it on my own. God, this is too big for me. The opportunity is too great. The challenge is too big. My willpower is too weak. I need you. I wonder, as you think about the close of this year and the opening of the next, if you put at the top of your list, God, fill me with your spirit. I wonder if that would make a difference. 